If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In June 1953, during the height of the Cold War in America, Ethel Rosenberg was executed. She'd been convicted, along with her husband Julius, of conspiracy to commit espionage on behalf of the Soviet Union in one of the most sensational trials of the 20th century. Then and now, doubts were expressed about the nature of Rosenberg's involvement in the spy ring, while the execution of a mother of two small boys was hugely controversial. Ethel Rosenberg's life story has now been retold in a new biography by author and historian Anne Seber. She was joined in conversation by BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. So to begin with, Anne, I wonder if we could talk about Ethel's early life. What kind of an upbringing did she have? Ethel was born in 1915 on the Lower East Side to immigrant parents. It was a second marriage for her father. Her father 
family, the Greenglasses, had come from Minsk, and her mother's family had come from Galicia, which is now in Austria. So they were immigrants, impoverished. They lived in a tenement. They just about made ends meet, thanks to her father Barney's tailoring shop at 64 Sheriff Street. And Ethel grew up in this tenement, but her way out was really the extraordinary school that she went to, um, Seward Park High School. And that was really where her eyes were opened. And she was obviously a bright girl. She did extremely well in this school. I visited the school and there's an Olympic-sized swimming pool in the basement, an Olympic-sized library, a theatre. And it's very clear to see from this that Ethel grew up in two different worlds, her parents' world of great poverty, Yiddish-speaking immigrants, and this other world where her eyes were opened, the, the school that was a very new school. At what point in her life did she first become attracted to left-wing political beliefs and ultimately communism? Her attraction to left-wing beliefs came on um, slowly, really, as a matter of, of her work. She really wanted to be a singer and an actor and had to leave school at 15 to earn money. She had a younger brother who was still at school, and so she couldn't go to college, which was what she really wanted. College for women was very new, but Ethel would have been just the type um, who would have qualified. So instead, she went out to work, and she continued to uh, educate herself. She joined various um, amateur dramatic societies, and the circles in which she was moving at that point were progressive, you could say, possibly left-wing, um, not much money, but not especially radical. It was really working for um, a packing company where she was involved in a strike and the management did not want to recognize the committee. And Ethel became extremely involved in this committee and the the strike was quite violent. Ethel lay down on the road to prevent cars and lorries delivering. And eventually, she was recognized by the newly formed Labour Board as someone who deserved to be paid back the money that she had lost um, during the strike. And I think that strike was really um, the, the seminal moment. But I actually think it was a much slower, more gradual movement. If you lived on the Lower East Side at the time of the Depression and you saw people who really couldn't make ends meet, who didn't have running water, who were having to throw furniture out into the street so that they could take in lodgers to make ends meet, this was a time of extreme poverty when many people were out of work and although there was the New Deal that didn't work initially and there had to be other government interventions. So it, it's really a much slower progression. But if you're asking me what's the specific event, it was this strike and Ethel being vindicated by the newly formed Labour Board and having the money paid back to her that she'd lost because of the strike. How and when did she then meet her husband and future co-defendant, Julius Rosenberg? Well, 
probably they joined the Communist Party in 1936. 1936 is an absolutely key year in world history, of course. It's when um, Hitler marched into the Rhineland against the terms of the Treaty of Versailles and completely overruled them. And arguably, that was the one moment when he could have been stopped. There was a popular front government in France led by Léon Blum, which had communists in it. And of course, the Spanish Civil War, um, where Ethel and Julius had friends who went off to fight um, against the, the nationalists. So I think it's not surprising that in 1936, that's probably when um, Ethel and Julius joined the Communist Party, as was very common among their friends of impoverished thinking people on, on the Lower East Side. And Ethel continued with her singing. So she often sang for workers' events and helped to raise money. And it was at one of these um, workers' galas in December 1936 that she met Julius because he'd come along to listen to her. And what kind of a life did Ethel and Julius lead as a young married couple? As a young married couple, it was a struggle. Ethel was older than Julius, and she helped him get through his exams. He was, I think, he'd at one point studied at a yeshiva and might have been a rabbi, but he gave that up and became secular and went to um, CCNY, the college in New York that was free, and studied engineering. He wasn't necessarily a gifted engineer or a born engineer, but it offered the most likely chance of a job. So he worked as an engineer, but he failed to pass one exam in Spanish. So Ethel coached him in that, and they weren't going to get married until he'd passed all his exams and was able to hold down a job. And although his parents liked Ethel, they wouldn't let them get married until Julius could get a job. That was the traditional attitude of many people, not just Jewish people. But um, so after they were married in 1939, and it was a a fairly small wedding, um, they moved between Julius's parents and family members. And then when Julius got a job, they moved there. But actually, they heard that um, the government was hiring people. And many of Julius's friends from college, engineers, uh, had government jobs in Washington. So Ethel, too, took these government exams. We'd call it the civil service, I suppose, the equivalent of. And Ethel was the first to pass. So they moved to Washington for a while with Ethel being the breadwinner. And then when Julius got a job, they came home again and and lived with Julius's parents for a while. And Ethel was a dutiful wife and gave up her job, as as was the done thing in in those days. And um, then Julius got various engineering jobs with army signals groups. And um, uh, he, he came home at times and Ethel stayed in, in New York City. And it was during World War II, I suppose this is the pivotal moment in the story, certainly in terms of the couple's eventual fate. Julius begins spying for the Soviet Union. How does this come about and what is the nature of his espionage activities? 
Well, as I'm sure everyone who listens to this will know, um, there was a Nazi-Soviet pact at the beginning of the war, but then in 1941, to make it brief, um, once Russia joined in the war, Russia became an ally. Julius believed that Russia had fought bravely and wanted to support an ally. So he was very keen to do what he could to help an ally, which in those days one can understand. So he made himself known and offered his services. And he was so keen that he became quite an effective spy ring recruiter because many of his friends at college in New York had useful jobs and could offer something. So that was his his main role in those days, finding and recruiting suitable people who felt sufficiently moved and, and sympathized with the Soviet Union to pass whatever information they had. And how significant was the information that Julius and his, I don't know if you'd call them a aspiring, was passing on to the Soviet Union? I think it was all helpful. I'm not going to underplay Julius's role, but it certainly was what is known as military industrial um, espionage. Um, The Soviet Union was happy to have whatever he could pass them. So, you know, I don't think it was critical information in answer to your question at this point. But um, he was building a circle of people who possibly might subsequently have been in a position to send more and more valuable stuff. And then I suppose the crucial question for your book, at least, is how much did Ethel know of Judith's activities and how involved was she in them? Well, those are two very separate questions. I think it's naive to pretend Ethel didn't know. I, I, I'm absolutely certain she was a convinced communist. This is a love story, by the way, as much as a spy story. And I, I really do want to emphasize that the book I have written is a book about a woman who fell in love with a man she greatly admired and continued to admire. And while she very definitely remained strongly supportive and encouraging, I am quite sure she knew what what he was doing. And I say that in several places in the book. I don't believe um, that she was involved. And there are very real evidence-based reasons for that. Ethel never had a code name. Ethel was not an agent. Ethel was never directly in contact with the KGB. Um, but I'm quite sure that she she knew more or less what her husband was doing. I mean, we can't know the pillow talk. We can't know all the extent because the sources are conflicting. But uh, that's not really relevant because she knew. Uh, and, and of course she knew. And of course she supported. And of course she approved. In my book, that's not the same as being a a KGB agent, and the KGB didn't see her as such either. And we we do know this, don't we, because post the fall of the Soviet Union, records have come out, haven't they? And and also in the US as well, which kind of give, I guess, more details about whether they were or weren't spying for the Soviet Union and, and the extent of that. 
Yes, the the key documents, well, perhaps we'll come back to the grand jury testimony, which some of which, in particular the case of Ethel's brother, was only revealed after 2015 when David died. But the key documents to which you're referring are Venona. So I I think perhaps people should know that Venona was an invented name. And they started towards the end of the war And clearly, the FBI were aware of them at the time of the trial. So they're more interesting for me because they're part of Ethel's story at the time. Well, they're they're extremely interesting for everyone, the fact that um, these documents were known. And they definitely do name Julius, who is mostly given the code name of liberal, as I say, Ethel had no code name, but David and Ruth did. Wasp was Ruth and, and David was Caliber. They change occasionally. But there are only two Venona documents which specifically mention Ethel. And, you know, I, I certainly cite them in my book. One of them says, well, there's only one that mentions Ethel by her actual name, you know, not a code name, as I say. So, Ethel does not work is open to various interpretations, and and I think one needs to be aware of them. Ethel, in reality, Ethel Rosenberg did not work. She didn't go out for paid work, but in the context of, of the KGB, what they're saying is she doesn't work for them, but she was a committed sympathizer. She was a a, a clever girl. There's there's no question that they felt she was trustworthy. I mean, I think there are other aspects. I really don't want to get hung up on this agenda that people who write spy books, because I've tried to write a much more rounded book about a portrait of a woman, a woman in an era, a woman who was convinced there was a better way to live. As I say, I believe she was a moral woman. And I think once you look at how Ethel was living her life, you see a very different portrait of somebody who believed in marriage, who loved her husband, who wanted to support him, who believed that they were doing the right thing. And one of the anecdotes that I talk about, which to me explains it more, is when Julius brought home these unassembled parts that together made a proximity fuse. I mean, I, I make no bones about it. It's it, it's a very powerful weapon to shoot down planes. And in return, or not actually in return, because um, the Russian agent Fetisov didn't quite know what was in his parcel when he gave Julius and Ethel their Christmas presents. But Fetisov, who was very fond of Julius, um, thought he was a little bit too keen and wanted to stop him. I'm getting over-involved. But he gave Julius and Ethel Christmas presents. And there was a very lovely handbag for Ethel, which um, Julius could not have afforded. I mean, that's the other thing that should be said. Julius did not spy for money. This was really because of, of his ideals, and he wanted to do something. And you can argue quite rightly, as I do, I think that he was vulnerable and ill-informed, but this is what he believed. So by giving Ethel and the baby a Christmas present as well, teddy bear, the Russians were almost admitting 
to Ethel. I mean, subliminally. We know you know. This is to say thank you. And they're making Ethel complicit. I, I think there is no doubt that Ethel was complicit in a marital sense. Ethel was complicit in that she understood and encouraged. I'm sorry to repeat myself, but, you know, these points need to be made clearly. She was not criminally complicit, in my view, and in the view of many others, in that she was not a spy. I mean, we haven't come on to the trial and the miscarriages of justice, which, of course, today would mean that she couldn't even, I mean, she might not even have been indicted, let alone electrocuted. We're still on the build-up to how they got there. And I'm quite sure that the Venona cables, um, which um, were known by the FBI, they probably were only hinted at to the highest level. I, I think the president might have been told there was other evidence without actually knowing what it was. And after these cables, which came out in the 1990s, there are, of course, the Vasiliev notebooks, um, which, and Vasiliev has worked with other authors. Vasiliev is, is a former Russian um, KGB officer who um, brought, smuggled out, I suppose one should say, some handwritten notes, not photocopies. And in some cases, his information about Venona is slightly different or KGB cables. So there is other information. And I think it just reinforces the same points. It does not um, it does not make Ethel an agent. So I, I know we sort of jumped ahead a bit of the story, but um, the next key moment, of course, is the fact that they are arrested and put on trial. And this actually happens now in the context of the Cold War rather than World War II when the events actually took place. So how did Julius get discovered and why was it decided to prosecute Ethel as well? Um, well, you know, we're skipping over the Cold War, but it, it is really dramatic, the change in attitudes towards Russia, um, who had been an ally. Suddenly, Russia was the enormously feared enemy. So in, in this fearful attitude of the Cold War, where everybody who had communist sympathies was investigated. Um, a man called Klaus Fuchs was arrested in England. Klaus Fuchs had worked on the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos. And once he was arrested, he named other people, and that led to Harry Gold, who was a courier. And Gold led to David Greenglass, who had been a lowly machinist at um, Los Alamos, as well as his wife. And of course, um, David Greenglass named not in his grand jury testimony, but in the trial. Subsequently, he changed his view in order to get a lesser sentence and to ensure that his wife was never charged. He named Julius and Ethel. He placed them squarely in the center of activities and invented, and we do know now that this was invented testimony, or to call um, it by its proper name, perjury. So um, he was encouraged to commit perjury, which makes the judicial process corrupt because the lawyers knew that um, they were using perjury to indict Ethel, to um, ensure that she was found guilty. 
Um, and sh- they were charged with conspiracy to commit espionage. I mean, that's very interesting because, of course, conspiracy simply means being part of a group or talking. Well, of course, um, Ethel was talking to her husband, so it was very easy to prove conspiracy. But in fact, in the oral indictment, the judge claimed that they'd committed treason. Now, treason had a much harsher penalty. It also had harsher rules. There were meant to be two pieces of evidence. um, And had they actually been charged with, with treason, it would have been harder to find them guilty. But he just subtly introduced that into his oral closing remark. Well, it, it was frequently mentioned. The word came up during the trial um, on many occasions. So the jury believed they were trying this, this couple for, for treason. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The belief was that some people get caught in the crosshairs of history. And For me, one individual matters, and I don't believe one individual is expendable for shaky law when the only evidence used against her in her trial was perjury. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You've already highlighted a couple of them, but um, in your book, you highlight quite a few deficiencies in the trial process. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the things that went wrong in the trial? Um, Well, what went wrong? One might start with the jury. Um, There was only one woman. It's hard to know whether if there'd been more women, they would have been more sympathetic. And I actually think probably not, because this particular woman, um, Lisette Damas, um, was... I, I think women felt that for another woman to be a spy, which they assumed Ethel was, was so appalling. So I don't know that another jury would have been more sympathetic. Um, there were no Jews on the jury. But again, um, many Jews, uh, prospective jurors, had um, excused themselves because the Jewish community was completely divided. It's one of the most interesting aspects of the story that um, successful Jews wanted to distance themselves from these commie Jews who they felt weren't patriotic. I mean, Ethel and Julius argued that they were patriotic. They just wanted a better America, and they felt that Russia deserved to share in in this information. They wanted to bring a little bit of the idealism they believed they saw in communism into America. Um, We could debate whether that's patriotic or not. And and I'm 
absolutely not defending betraying one's country. I'm trying at every stage to understand what makes people feel that they are doing the best for their country. Because I think, you know, to be extremist doesn't help anyone. I think one has to be nuanced in this. And I like to think I'm capable of holding more than one idea in my head at the same time. So while Julius was guilty and Ethel was um, sympathizing, the trial was deficient because it saw the Rosenbergs as one immutable block. It was unable to separate the two. And actually worse than that, as I've hinted with the female juror, the judge, Irving Kaufman, who indulged in ex parte conversations with the prosecuting lawyer, Roy Cohn, which is absolutely illegal and unacceptable. But Irving uh, Irving Kaufman, in his summing up, accused Ethel because she was three years older. I mean, there's the misogyny of the period. A woman who's three years older must be the master and leading her young husband astray. And she's really um, a senior partner in all of this. So there's horrific sexism at work. And many of the newspapers who were writing comments about the trial, because the jury wasn't sequestered until the end, were writing about Ethel's demeanor and, you know, the fact that she didn't cry and that she didn't show emotion was counted against her. Uh, They pleaded the Fifth Amendment, which um, subsequently, of course, can be seen to be a mistake. If they had openly said, yes, we're communists, but being a communist is not what's on trial here, but they didn't. They got themselves, particularly Ethel, tangled up by not replying to questions that they thought would indicate they were communists, because they were fearful that if they indicated they were communists, and they were right to be fearful that actually it was communism that was on trial. There was a very fine line, but everybody knew it, that if you're a communist, you're a supporter of Stalin, and therefore you're guilty. They would have been better advised to admit that they were communists and then look at the particular charges. So I think that the real issue is David Greenglass, Ethel's brother, who changed his testimony um, without Ethel and Julius knowing. And at the last moment, he invented a story, or rather he corroborated a story that his wife Ruth had invented. And as he said, when he came out and was on television, well, what am I going to do? Contradict my wife? I sleep with my wife, not my sister. And Ruth, encouraged by the prosecution team, invented a story that she had seen Ethel do the typing, that a Remington portable typewriter, which she knew Ethel had, Ethel had learnt to be in secretarial duties, she did type out letters for Julius, that they brought out a bridge table and Ethel typed on this incriminating evidence. And it was this typing, the perjury, that sent Ethel to her death, which David admitted afterwards he didn't even know if anyone had done the typing. Maybe his wife had or maybe nobody had. But clearly, if you see his grand jury testimony, which was only released after his death, and the grand jury is the preliminary where people say what they think, you know, where where people are charged to see if there's enough to indict them to go to full trial. And in that, 
David said specifically, my sister wasn't involved, leave my sister out of it. I'm not just saying it because she's my sister, honest to God, you know, Ethel, Ethel was not part of this. That's quite different in, in the trial. And then this other prop, the jello box. I mean, it's a theatrical production, the trial. It lasted 18 days. I mean, that in itself is shocking to, to be able to have a trial of this seriousness in 18 days. And the prosecution listed at the beginning all sorts of um, nuclear scientists that they thought they would call, and in the, event, in, in the event they didn't. But the two theatrical props that um, were invented were the jello box, which was cut diagonally as a recognition symbol. Well, even if it had ever invented, of course, it would have been sent to Russia, so the real thing didn't exist. But um, recent documents indicate that actually Julius was not being used by the Russians at this precise moment in 1945. So he may never have met with David and Ruth um, in New York. And maybe the recognition signal was something that Ruth had in um, Albuquerque. But anyway, tying it to Ethel and Julius was what was invented in the court. And David produced some lens mold sketches. David was not a qualified engineer. It's highly unlikely he would have been able to, to do that at the time. And there's no evidence that he did actually pass those on, but they were produced in the court as evidence. And then why do you think that Julius, and in particular Ethel, received the death penalty? I mean, even at the time, this was quite controversial. It absolutely was controversial. I mean, Klaus Fuchs, who I mentioned, who was obviously a spy, actually only served 10 years in the event of, of his sentence. I think it was used as a lever. I think because Julius was a spy ring recruiter, they thought he knew lots of names and that he could lead them to many more. Uh, we haven't really talked about this intense fear during the Cold War, and it really needs to be emphasized. It was a time of hysteria. Um, you know, uh, uh, the, the rabble-rouser-in-chief was was McCarthy. So, you know, this was deep into McCarthy fear that um, if we don't stop the Russians, they will nuke us. So these commie spies have to be stopped. And um, in fact, there was no secret of the atomic bomb that Julius had passed on. Um, he may have passed on some information from um, Los Alamos, but, but the the Russians were already aware of what was going on and all, already building their own bomb. The, the problem was really the logistics of, of how one delivered it. And Julius had nothing to do with that. Um, so why did they get the death sentence? It, it's this intense fear and fear and hysteria and the belief that if we use Ethel as a lever, and that word was used at the time, to make Julius speak, we might um, expand the net and catch them all. And how did Ethel cope with her periods of imprisonment, and particularly once she knew she was facing the death penalty? I think that's really extraordinary, actually, um, whatever one's views of Ethel, how she found the strength to live with dignity, 
to write some very moving letters. She tried at first to parent from prison, but that was made impossible for her, really. But she did her absolute best to keep in touch with her children and make sure they were getting the right care. That was her first priority. She was completely alone. Julius was in a cell. At least there were other people there. I mean, one of them was a government informer, but there were other people with whom he could talk and play chess. Ethel had absolutely nobody. There was a matron at the beginning, but she died. Um, And then occasionally Julius was brought to her in, in a cage outside her cell, and she occasionally saw a lawyer and occasionally saw her psychiatrist. I think, how did Ethel cope? I think the belief that her children would somehow survive I've tried to put myself in in her situation. Of course, it's impossible for anyone else to imagine that. I've been to Sing Sing. I've seen the prison cell. You know, there's no question of escape. And they were very busy trying to fight um, for, for their freedom and to vindicate themselves. And people coming to their rescue was not much solace because that was slow moving. And they just were determined not to put other people in that situation. I think writing the letters was a help, but there was a period where she did, where she stopped, where she did sink into a depression. And what kind of response was there in America and around the world to the fact that a death penalty had been handed out to a woman, to a mother at this point? Extremely strong. I mean, it took time to get going, but once the story came out, um, in the National Guardian, which is an American paper, and um, they headlined it there that this is America's Dreyfus case because it was a miscarriage of justice, however different it was, of course. Certainly in France, I mean, imagine a story that unites people like Einstein, the Pope, Jean Paul Sartre, certainly in France, but in many other countries of Europe and Australia. They all felt it simply was not necessary to electrocute a woman. I mean, the the death penalty in general was already under discussion. We didn't abolish the death penalty in England un, until 1965. So, you know, we did still uh, kill people, but for murder. I think the, the point is that Ethel was being killed for a crime other than murder, the only woman in modern American times to suffer that penalty. So it was extreme. And, you know, she was 37 and the mother of of two sons who were going to be orphaned. I think really, you know, the willful, the, the willingness of a state to overlook its own laws, because, you know, it needs to be said, America had laws that were being overlooked in willingly sending to her death this woman against whom they knew the evidence was shaky at best. And you alluded earlier to the fact that there were attempts made to to get their convictions overturned or for clemency, which ultimately went all the way to the president of the United States, Dwight Eisenhower. Why do you think none of those succeeded? I think there was just huge fear of communism. I think they believed that the end justified the means. I think there was knowledge that Julius had been involved and 
Ethel was caught in the crosshairs. I mean, one official said she called our bluff. They didn't want to kill Ethel as well. They believed she'd talk. Everyone else had talked. Klaus Fuchs had talked. The Green Glasses had talked. Um, Harry Gold had talked. But the buck stopped with the Rosenbergs. And I suppose they hadn't expected that but they were prepared to see it through. They really wanted to be strong in the face of what they saw as a credible communist threat. Uh, We also haven't mentioned that the Korean War had just begun. And the judge in his summing up actually blamed Ethel for the fighting that was going on. And that was a terribly sensitive moment because American soldiers were being killed. It was brutal and bloody. And that touched a raw nerve in American society. And, you know, the idea that, well, maybe she's guilty, uh, you know, they just, the, the belief was that some people get caught in the crosshairs of history. And for me, one individual matters. And I don't believe one individual is expendable for shaky law when the only evidence used against her in her trial was perjury. After the couple were executed, what was the response to to that, and specifically in terms of Ethel? Shock. I'm not sure there's a a unilateral response, but I I think the primary concern in, in, in the circle of the Rosenbergs was to look after the two boys, actually. I think that's where the focus went after the execution. And there was a move to institutionalize the boys. There was a fear on the part of American institutions that these two boys would be an absolute liability. They'd try and, you know, join radical groups to prove and and cause difficulty, and they should therefore be institutionalized and not to remember their parents as heroes. But actually, Two heroes did step in at this point, Anne and Abel Mirapol, who were former communists. They were certainly communist sympathizers. And that, to me, is the real redemption that these two boys are looked after by this wonderful couple who bring them up with a different name. So they become Mirapol, not Rosenbergs. And they talked about their parents respectfully, but they, they grew up, they were given that safe space to grow. What has been the afterlife of Ethel Rosenberg? Well, it's gone in waves, really, but particularly the afterlife is um, vivid in the cultural scene. She's been um, memorialised in several paintings, collages, works of art, statues. In Cuba, you might expect there to be one, um, and, and indeed there is. But in America, too, she's been the subject of a number of works of literature, Um, The Bell Jar, Sylvia Plath's um, seminal novel about madness, about America in the 1950s, opens with these very um, potent words. It was a queer, sultry summer, the summer they executed the Rosenbergs. And then the play Angels in America, where if you've watched the HBO version, Meryl Streep plays Ethel Rosenberg, who is involved with um, Roy Cohn, who um, dies of AIDS, and um, she doesn't exactly forgive him. Uh, E.L. Doctorow has written a book, uh, it's called The Book of Daniel, 
And, um, you know, it, it goes on. I think there's a new novel by Francine Prose coming out this, this summer. Why do you think Ethel Rosenberg's story captures the public imagination in this way? Because she was an ordinary woman caught up in these huge events in history, um, the Depression, World War II, Cold War, and uh, somehow she hasn't often been given agency, as we say these days. She's been looked at as the wife of Julius, so she's considered either um, that she was his slave or she was his master in these pop psychology terms that have been used about her. And as new information comes out and new literature the whole time, suddenly she can be given agency as a woman who decided, well, they've taken everything from me, but they can't take away how I die and I'm going to die with dignity. And I think that makes a very powerful role model, especially today, um, where I, I'm not really comparing Ethel to the Me Too movement because that, you know, as a historian, that's inaccurate. But you asked why she's she's important today or why she's still relevant. And I think young women, and particularly those who read The Bell Jar, want to know more about who she was, who was this woman who refused to be used by the government, who, who refused to lie and say that she was involved when she wasn't involved. And that's quite a potent message for, for feminists. And I think, actually, even without that, to see an ordinary woman who could be you or me caught up because of her marriage and her beliefs in these really important key moments of 20th century history is endlessly fascinating. We can understand more about history by looking at it through individuals, I believe, than in, in any other way. That was Anne Seba. Ethel Rosenberg, A Cold War Tragedy, is out now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.